And now turn to our confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the ninth Lord's Day, Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism. As we continue to look at what we confess and think about what we confess in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. Lord's Day 9, we'll read that Lord's Day together. Question 26 asks us, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And our response is that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father." Thus far, the reading from our catechism. May God bless the proclamation of his word as well as the reading of his word and the confession of the church. Following the sermon, we'll respond by singing together from hymn 36, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we think about how we are to live as a light in our community, how we are to evangelize, how we are to proclaim the gospel message. One of the things that we need to think about is the barriers that exist between the communication of the gospel and the acceptance of the gospel message and those who hear it. Now, there are many things that stand in the way of the world's understanding of the gospel message. And when we think of the Apostles' Creed and the articles, when we think of our confessions, we can use our confessions and the Apostles' Creed as an apologetic tool, as a tool of the defense of the faith and also as an evangelistic tool, how we are to speak about the gospel. And it opens up our eyes to some of the issues that our neighbors may have with the faith that we profess and proclaim. And in this case, the issue is the issue of fatherhood. Since the fall into sin, being a father has been a difficult and challenging task. Men who are sinners are charged with providing leadership. They've been charged with the responsibility of caring for their families, providing leadership within the family for their wife and for their children, and providing for, physically, their wives and children. All of our relationships have been impacted by sin. That includes parent-child relationships. It includes relationship between husbands and wives. And that means that when we relate to others, we're dealing not only with their sin, but we're dealing with our own sin. So fathers have been entrusted with the responsibility and privilege of providing physical care and spiritual care to their families. That means leading not only in the day-to-day responsibilities of life, the practical things you could say, going out and earning a living, putting food on the table, putting a roof over your head, 
but also in leading their families to love and fear the Lord. Now, fatherhood has always been a challenge, but even more so today. And the concept of fatherhood has become a concept which, has, which is not fully and easily understood in the world. And so when we say to our neighbors, I believe in God the Father and God is my Father, their first thought may not be necessarily, oh, that's a good thing, because every experience they may have had with a father may have been a negative experience. They may have had an abusive father. They may have had an absent father. They may have had a number of father figures in their lives. And so when they think of God as father, it doesn't strike a chord for them. Because fathers, more than ever, are falling short of fulfilling their calling as they were intended to do so. Now, even the best fathers in the world realize and understand their shortcomings. But today, fatherhood is really, and we can say this very certainly, fatherhood is under attack. We see it all around us. And the erosion of the office and calling of father stems from largely three sources. We can, I'll list those three sources and explain a little bit about each one. First of all, the feminist movement. Now, the feminist movement had a laudable goal. The goal was the improvement of women's lot in life. In the beginnings of the feminist movement, the traditional roles of male and female, those traditional roles were seen as being oppressive. Being a housewife began to be looked down upon. The term even uh, not allowed to be used anymore. Women were in essence told that in order to find their worth, in order to find a very important, a really truly important place in society, they needed to work outside of the home. But what happened with the surging of the feminist movement is that this left many men wondering what exactly their role is. Where do I fit in? How do I fit in the the family if I don't provide leadership, if I'm not the one providing for my family? If they can no longer think of themselves as being heads of the household, how should they think of themselves? If I'm not supposed to be the leader, well, then who is? Now, because of men's sinfulness, we are often content to leave the leadership to others. Leadership is difficult. It's not easy to lead selflessly, to lead for the good of others, to give yourself really and fully, not just in word, but to give yourself in leadership. Now, that's not how the world thinks of leadership, but that is how how leadership is exemplified for us in God's word and in God himself. That's how fatherhood is exemplified in God's word. It's servant leadership. It's leadership that puts the needs and the desires of the leader second, and it puts the needs of the people whom he's leading in first place. And that kind of leadership, brothers and sisters, takes work. It's work that we as men are often happy to leave to others because we don't want the stress, because we don't want the bother, because we are inherently lazy. 
And so the societal norm where the man and the husband in the family, the father, is viewed automatically as the head of the family. That societal norm has been eroded over the past decades. And this has left husbands and fathers in a kind of a no-man's land, not knowing exactly what they should be doing, not knowing what they shouldn't be doing, and not knowing really what it is that a father should be doing and what a real father looks like. So that's the first issue. The second one is the sexual revolution. And the second one is, is we can see it and understand it in combination with the feminist movement. That sexual revolution began really in the 1960s. The appearance of the birth control pill was a big uh, impetus for the growth of the sexual revolution. But this sexual revolution has done more to erode fatherhood than anything else. And ironically, both the sexual revolution, which purported to offer freedom to women, and the feminist movement, which aimed to offer liberation to women. It's ironic, but it's very true that both of these movements have led to less freedom and to a radical decline in women's lifestyles, along with attacking the so-called traditional father. Because what has happened with this supposed freedom has come a loosening of moral standards. And that loosening of moral standards has given free reign to men to follow their lowest and most basic impulses. When sex is freely offered, without commitment, men will take advantage of that situation. And when a pregnancy happens, what happens then? The man disappears from the picture. Now, being an unmarried mother was previously, in previous generations, seen as something shameful. But now it's commonplace. Being an absent father was even worse. Formerly a terrible shame for a man. Imagine not produ producing a child and then going, going ahead and not taking care of him or her and abandoning the mother. But as morality has been eroded steadily, as the biblical norm for marriage and parenting has been eroded and ignored and mocked and pushed aside and even, even described as something negative, fatherless families abound, especially in some communities where the results of that, those fatherless fa families is obvious. So that's the second issue leading to the decline in understanding of, of fatherhood, of biblical fatherhood in our society. The third reason for the decline of, of understanding of this issue is the nanny state the retreat of the church. Now, during the time of the Reformation, our forefathers in the faith were active in society. They were also closely aligned with the state. In one book on the history of the Reformation, I read the following, and I'll quote what the author wrote. He said, Ecclesiastical authorities worked to strengthen the bonds of matrimony and engaged in a determined clarification and enforcement of proper sexual comportment. In other words, uh, they taught the people and they enforced what they taught regarding sexual behavior inside of marriage. So couples had to honor betrothal vows. So when a couple got engaged, 
they had to honor those vows. They had to publish marital bans announcing that they were going to get married and offering opportunity for objections. They had to observe the prohibited degrees of consanguinity, which is a big word that means that relatives were not allowed to marry each other. And they were to obtain parental permission to wed. Men and women living together without benefit of holy marriage were told in no uncertain terms that they must regularize their relationships. They must get married. Officials invariably summoned and punished pregnant but unwed women. The slightest hint of sexual impropriety by women or men led to prompt investigation. The assault on fornication and adultery was vigorous and unrelenting. That was the world in the time of the Reformation in the 16th century. And so people may say, well, that, that's restrictive. That's the church putting it, sticking its nose where it doesn't belong. That's the church being patriarchal, paternalistic, abusive. But the thing is, there are two sides to this story. Because not only did the church work to control behavior, it wasn't just that, the negative aspect, they also provided supports so that good behavior would be encouraged. In the same book, I read the following. The churches placed poverty-stricken boys in apprenticeships with cobblers, blacksmiths, printers, and other artisans. They found employment for poor young women as servants and eventually gave them dowries so that they could marry. Constructive employment, stable marriages, and secure families were key elements in the maintenance of public order and social peace. And so churches in some large towns cooperated with the civil authorities, and what they did was create a list of donors and recipients, those who would give and those who would receive, those who had the resources and those who didn't, in complicated arrangements for distribution of bread to the needy. These mechanisms for assisting the poor, the poverty-stricken, appeared to have eased the burden of poverty, while at the same time regulating and instructing the poor in the economic and social spheres. And so this control over the poor, which can be seen as something very negative in today's world, also entailed supervision of moral behavior and religious faith. So churches required that people be well-behaved, and devout to receive support. And so in the French churches in the time of the Reformation, they offered a system of social assistance, of social welfare, which offered individual believers an immediate awareness and understanding of their Christian responsibility toward the poor. Now I mentioned this third aspect, which has attacked the role of the father, being the nanny state and the retreat of the church. Because all of this has changed. It all sounds extremely foreign to us now. Because what has happened? The church has willingly and readily retreated into private society and has relegated all of those roles to the state. From health care to welfare to the care of widows to the care of orphans the care of those who have been abused, it's all gone to the state. Now what happens? Now we have an impersonal state that provides welfare for the poor, regardless of how they got into that position. Fathers are no longer expected to provide for their children and are no longer shamed when they, when they don't provide for their children. The state is expected to do that. 
The state functions as the father. And in a large part of our society, there is no shame whatsoever to any of these things. Now, it's less less shameful, it appears, in our modern culture to take money by force from strangers, which is what our tax system does, than to take money in the form of charity with strings attached. And so all of these things, brothers and sisters, and other societal factors in addition to these things, have led to the erosion of the role of the Father in the society. And so when we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, this confession of God as Father is no longer as clearly understood and appreciated as it was prior to our society becoming what it is now, a post-Christian society. Because God's fatherhood, as we said, provides the perfect model for human fatherhood. Now, human fatherhood may have, in general, fallen into a sorry state recently, but we have the perfect model for human fatherhood in the fatherhood of our Creator And we can see this in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, the verses 14 to 16, where the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now when we see in verse 15 from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's better to read that from whom or in whom uh, all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. So all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named in God our Father, our Heavenly Father. Because God the Father provides us with the ultimate example of what a father should be. And our catechism explains that meaning to us. God the Father is first of all, as one of His unchanging attributes, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so fatherhood is, belongs to the very essence of who God is. It is what makes Him God. Jesus Christ is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption. And so we as followers of Christ united to Him by faith, we live in a very special relationship with the Almighty God of creation. Because of Christ, we know Him not only as our Creator, but we know Him also as our Father, as the perfect Father. And so when we speak of God the Father Almighty, we are actually speaking of two aspects of who God is in relation to us. So he is, first of all, our Father. And that means that he's willing to provide us with all things necessary for body and soul and to turn to good whatever adversity he sends us in this life of sorrow. So he's God the Father, but he is also the Almighty. And that means he's also able to provide us with everything that we need. And he's able to arrange all of the circumstances of our lives, whether they're good or bad, for our benefit. Now a real father, a father that so many in this world do not know, is someone who's willing and who is able to provide for his family. 
Now, that's what true fatherhood is because it is a reflection of the fatherhood of God. Now, the problem with fatherhood and the problem that I began this message speaking about is that so many people, so many men who are physically fathers are not fathers in reality because they are either unwilling or they are unable to care for their family. And in some cases, they are both unwilling and unable. But even the best of fathers, as we've already seen, even the best among us have to struggle with this. Sometimes we're able to care for our families in certain ways. We have the time, we have the resources, but we're unwilling. Other things get in the way, other priorities, selfishness. And sometimes we're willing to care for our families in other ways, financially and materially. We want nothing more than to provide an adequate standard of living to our children, to our wives, to those who are under our care. But we're unable. But God the Father Almighty, when we say that, we are speaking to the issue that He is perfectly able as the creator of heaven and earth, as a sustainer of the intricate workings of this universe. So He put together the vast incomprehensible mechanism of this universe. The galaxies, the solar systems, the stars, the planets, and everything else so that it works together and it fits together perfectly. But he's not only the creator and the sustainer of these big things, these huge unimaginable things, he's also the upholder and the governor of small things. The atoms, the molecules, the intricate details of the cells that work together and all of that, that machinery within those cells that wouldn't work at all if a single piece were to be missing. And it all works beautifully and it all works perfectly. And as R.C. Sproul wrote, he said, if there's one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. But there are no rogue molecules. Every hair on our head is numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God. Every blade of grass moved by the wind, every leaf that falls to the ground, every strand in every spider's web, every one of these things is known intimately by God. Every one of these things is controlled by God. He never lacks the resources that he needs to care for his children. He never leaves anything to chance. He directs absolutely everything, completely. And he directs everything for us as his children for the sake of his son. And we read that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, where Paul says about the Lord Jesus Christ, Then God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which we heard in this afternoon's worship service as well, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. And we also read about that in Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8, the verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I'll continue with verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. But all for those who love God, all things work together for the good. So all of these things, from the electrons and protons and neutrons to the greatest suns in the universe, all of these things are governed by God for the sake of the church, for the sake of His people. All things have been placed under the feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is head over everything for the benefit of us, for the benefit of His people to bring us to glory, to give us everything we need to live and to serve Him. And He is able to do this as the almighty creator of all things, as the all-powerful governor and upholder of all things, and as our Father. He is willing, not because we deserve it, but because He is first of all the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because through Christ, he has reconciled us to him. He has adopted us. The Lord Jesus said this in John chapter 8. And he said this to those who are of the world, the enemies of the gospel. John chapter 8, verse 41. He said, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So, brothers and sisters, our natural state as children of Adam is the same as those enemies of Christ, those people that he's addressing in this passage. And he doesn't pull any punches here when he tells them that they are of their father, the devil, and that they live to do their father's desires. Now, it's not that the devil produced them literally, that they literally are descended from him. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, like father, like son. He's saying that they're like him. They are his children because they seek to do his will. They seek to do what their father desires. But we are, in this way, also children of God, our able and willing father. This is a gift of grace. And not only that, it's also a fact of life that that we need to use to direct the way in which we think about ourselves and the way that we live. Children want to please their fathers, and they imitate their fathers, and that may be for good or for ill. And we become, when we think about worship, 
when we think about imitation, we become like the things that we worship. As children of God, we look to our Father for our sustenance, for our care, and for our marching orders to let us know what we need to do and how we need to do it. And we look to Him as the example of what we should be ourselves and how we should live. And as children who have been given everything by our Heavenly Father, who are perfectly cared for, who have been rescued from the refuse heap of humanity, adopted, set apart, made children in every respect, we should seek to please Him in every part of our lives. He delights in giving us good gifts. And as His children as those who John describes in John chapter 1, verse 13, as those who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or, uh, will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, our greatest joy should be pleasing Him. So that's how our relationship to God the Father and His fatherhood is also our greatest motivation. In our work, We work not for other human beings, first and foremost, but for our Heavenly Father. We work to please Him by working faithfully, by by using the talents that He's given us to do that. In our marriages, we submit to one, one another in love, not primarily for the sake of our spouses, but out of reverence for Christ and to be like our Heavenly Father. As parents, we want to reflect the parenthood of God and do all that we can with the Holy Spirit equipping us, empowering us to be willing and faithful fathers and mothers. And as children, we should obey our parents in everything for this pleases the Lord, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. And so when we speak about the fatherhood of God, we have a rich treasury of images to use as we speak to a world which does not know fatherhood to a large extent. We are God's children. He is our Father. He gives us life. He sustains our life. He loves us. He cares for us. And as a father, he also disciplines us. And so as his children, brothers and sisters, let us trust in him. Let us obey him. And let us live to please him. Amen.